And Peter and John, we know, have seen the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene has seen the risen Jesus. Three other women, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, have now returned and discussed their walk with Jesus. The news of the resurrection is now on the lips of trusty, incredible messengers. And here are the ten disciples, still afraid, terrified that any moment these doors are going to get busted in, they're going to get rounded up and crucified along with their Lord Jesus. Do you guys remember how terrified they were in the garden? When that small mob shows up, what did they do? They hightailed it. They got out of there. They ran with their tail between their legs. Peter was so scared to be associated with Jesus, he denied him three times. And here they are, still terrified. The doors are locked tight. No one can know that Jesus' remaining followers are all in one room right now because that would be the quickest end to everything that Jesus had set up. And so they set up this emergency meeting. They're discussing this new development. Oh, all these people are coming back and saying Jesus has risen again from the dead. What do we do, guys? This band of fearful, simple men are about to have their lives turned upside down because Jesus, in his resurrected body, appears in front of them all. And in this act of love, to confirm their trust and hope in him, he appears to them and he gives them all the assurance and all the proof that they need to know that Jesus has indeed risen again from the dead. They had the privilege above all privileges to feel the holes in his hands and the holes in his side. They were these eyewitnesses who would testify to the truth of the resurrection with the entire world. They were entrusted by Jesus the task of building the universal church. And what was the first words in this passage that came out of Jesus' mouth? Peace. Peace be with you. Everything had been accomplished. Christ had saved his people. And his people were now at peace with God. This wasn't a statement merely to ease their fretful and fearful hearts, although it most assuredly did. It wasn't even a statement to rid them of doubt. It was a statement of a Lord who had just secured their salvation for all eternity. The Lord who had put them at peace with God, with their own consciences, and with each other forever. This peace was won by blood spilt on a cross. It wasn't just for the disciples alone, but for the whole world. Did you catch verse 21? Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now you may be thinking, Jesus, don't know if these are the guys. They're currently in here afraid. They're currently in here with the doors locked tightly because their association with you is something that's really messing with their heads. And Jesus comes to them and says, no, you are the guys I'm going to send out. You are the very guys that I'm going to build my kingdom from. You will be the ones who will carry this message, my witnesses to my resurrection. They were sent to declare this peace, that peace was possible in the name of Jesus. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The same God who breathed into Adam, that man of dust, the breath of life, was the same God who was now breathing into them a new creation, a new birth, and a new man. They were now reborn in Him. And their task was to be sent into the world bearing the gospel message. He says in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, 
They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, they are now recipients of the powerful message of the gospel, the proclaimed message of the risen Jesus. The disciples were the ones who carried the message of how someone gets saved. With authority, they can now declare forgiveness on all those who believe in Jesus and condemnation on those who reject him. It says in, uh, Jesus says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting, the wrath of God remains. It's already there. Jesus is the thing that lifts the wrath of God off from you. And while all this amazing stuff is going on, there is notably one man absent. Thomas. He wasn't there. The cynic of the group, the most skeptical and unbelieving of the lot was coincidentally missing. But as we know, there is no such thing as coincidence with God. This is God's providential choice. Thomas was missing for a reason. And this leads me to our second point, the doubting disciple. Let's pick up from verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now you can rest assured that Thomas had no idea that this statement was about to get immortalized in the New Testament forever. It's going to earn him the title of Doubting Thomas. You see, Thomas was that guy who never really believed anything he said unless it was something absolutely ordinary and bland. You see, it's an exercise in futility to try to disprove a cynic. They will always have a reason to discredit you. You will never win in an open debate. That's not how cynics work, and I'll tell you why. They will always have colorful examples to back up their terrible opinion of humanity. If you're talking to someone who hates the church, or someone who's cynical about the church, they'll probably have some long-winded story about how someone in leadership or someone in a church mistreated them, maltreated them, and all this horrible stuff happened. And so therefore, the whole church and everyone in the church is just as bad as these people. You know, the Thomas, in saying, look guys, I don't believe you. What was he saying to the disciples? You guys are either all insane or you're all lying to me. There was not much depth of relationship, apparently, from Thomas. They're either trying to pull a fast one on him, or they've all gone mad. Those are the only two options. The third option, nah. That doesn't happen. His disbelief was not based on a rational assessment of the facts and coming to the most obvious conclusion. He's, this was all a defense against suffering. That is what is ultimately the heart of the cynic. It's a defense against suffering. Thomas didn't want to be a fool. He didn't want to be accused of being gullible. And usually the cynic is that way because of some horrible event in the past that caused them to lose their sense of awe and wonder at the world. Something happened to them which caused them to give up on life. This world is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is misery. Something Horrible has happened that made them bitter, unbelieving, and always ascribing the worst possible motives to everyone around them. But beneath the hard exterior of a cynic is fear. 
They are plagued by fear that something will turn out worse than they hoped. That it will end up being horrible and they should never have hoped in it in the first place. Think about Thomas for a second. Let's think about this man. He let his guard down and trusted Jesus. He followed Jesus. He loved Jesus. And Jesus went and died. He grumbled here and there, but when Jesus wanted to return to Bethany, the place where the Jews had just tried to kill Jesus, listen to Thomas's happy-go-lucky attitude in John eleven sixteen. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is kind of who Thomas was, right? It's always the worst outcome. Always the worst thing was going to happen. Despite Thomas's gruff attitude, he'd seen all of Jesus's miracles. He'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. He had come to believe and trust in Jesus. And I'm sure to him, it was against his better judgment. He actually hoped in something for once in his miserable life. He came out of his shell to find what? His savior dead. This will never happen to me again. I will never let this happen. I won't get my hopes up again. That's not how this works. I told you, you can't trust anyone. You can't put your hope in anything. It's all going to let you down. This is Thomas. And so he dug in. And he wasn't going to entertain the idea of Jesus rising again from the dead. He would never be discouraged or let down again. And he would never be at the emotional whims of another. He might seem like a man who just wants the cold, hard facts. But beneath his cold exterior, Thomas was desperately trying to protect himself. Usually when you end up in a conversation with a cynic, you quickly find out that their positions are not based on wisdom, insight or experience. But rather it was some traumatic event that caused them to lose all hope in the world. Somewhere in their life, they faced a situation that destroyed the wonder and awe that they had when they were born. And that horrible thing has turned them cynical. They they can't trust in anything anymore. They can't hope in anything anymore. You can rest assured that the last person who would ever recognize this is the cynic themselves. They'll talk about how everyone is out to manipulate others and lie and cheat and pile up example after example, offering their complex and clever theories. They've always got something to talk about. But they won't talk about that time that their father's drunkenness destroyed their family and caused them to give up on the world. They won't talk about the deep scars that left on their soul when their mother abandoned them at the age of seven. They're not going to talk about how their divorce made them give up on life. The true cynics are never actually cynical. They are scarred people lashing out at the world that had let them down one too many times. They're trying to keep whatever pleasures and comforts they have. That's why when we see the Pharisees, the cynical Pharisees, they refused to attribute the resurrection of Christ to anything other than falsity. They would not allow the plain facts to get in between their power and their wealth and their religiosity, beliefs, their status. They both knowingly and astonishingly told the soldiers to lie about the situation, say the disciples stole Jesus' body. They knew it was a lie. Amazing, astonishing. I mean, Thomas, he gets a bad rap. He, d- he does deserve the title of doubting Thomas. But man, the Pharisees are at another level of cynicism. And Thomas, he led his past, his erroneous beliefs, and his hopes that were dashed when Jesus was crucified 
to deny the plain evidence in front of him. But Thomas's story doesn't end here, does it? Why? Because Jesus will lose none that the Father has given to him. It wasn't because of Thomas's excellence that he eventually worked out that Jesus was risen again from the dead. It was grace. That's my third point. The blessed believer. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, a whole week has gone by since the disciples have seen the resurrected Jesus. And you can imagine that Thomas has kind of been having a hard time with the rest of the disciples, right? They're probably like, come on, man, we saw him. We saw him. He was there. Like, you think we'd make something like this up? You think that we would uh, be trying to pull a, pull a fast one on you with something this serious? He's been bombarded with account after account. He's like a stubborn mule. He has refused to budge. He will not believe. He demands proof and he will never believe unless his standards are met. It doesn't matter what compelling evidence or testimony is brought to him unless he places his hands in the side of Jesus. He will never believe. Very, very strong language. And arguing, you know, trying to argue a cynic out, it's not going to work. No amount of examples or proof were going to change Thomas's opinions because his opinions were not an attempt to ascertain the facts and come to a reasonable conclusion. He was protecting himself. It's the long-tested method of coping learned under count, countless years of despondency and pessimism. But what the cynic really needs is not arguments and proofs, but kindness, compassion, love. The need to once again feel the spiritual realities of this world, that there really is something good, that there really is something out there worth fighting for, that there really is something to hope in. And right at the core of what this cynic needs is a hope that will ignite their stunted desires for something beyond that miserable life that they lead. Who knows Thomas better than the Lord Jesus? Now, Jesus appears to them all again, except this time... He's not necessarily appearing to the other ten. He's appearing to one man this time, Thomas. Jesus, knowing what he said, says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Now, you could think that Jesus could show up in the room and say, Thomas, you look a bit silly now, don't you, mate? Look who it is. Remember what you said? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Thomas, you idiot. Why don't you believe? You realize what that makes the rest of your disciples you claim to love look like you're saying they're liars. You kidding me, man? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say any of that. With great kindness and love, Jesus showed Thomas that his trust and faith in him was not in vain. That when he came out of his shell initially and trusted in Jesus, although it felt like it was dashed in the crucifixion, it would flame again. That this cynic would be transformed. 
through the love of his Savior. Jesus met his need in that moment, although Thomas did not deserve it. This is when Jesus says something really important. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This statement would cause this pessimistic and hopeless man to unravel. Whatever hurt in his past that had justified him, that cynicism was a virtue, was now demolished by the kindness and compassion of a saviour. His beliefs and values, gone. Because he now lives in a new reality, a new world. He lives in a world where a man was risen from the dead and would live eternally. That's the world he lived in. Not the miserable world that he thought existed. He lived in the world with hope. He lived in the world with love. He lived in the world with kindness. He lived in the world with a future. With real tangible hope that he was touching right now with his hands. Look at how Thomas responds. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas was transformed in that moment by the love of his Savior. It is the same love that will transform even the most gruff, hardened, long-term cynic that you will ever meet. Always remember that the cynic is a hurting person. But what you need to do is not argue with them with facts because that's futile. Open their minds to the reality that there is hope in this world. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For those of us Christians who have laid aside our cynicism and fear and put our hope and trust in Jesus, we are truly blessed. We will not be let down. We will not be abandoned. We will not be proven false. Because our hope and trust in Jesus is as rock solid as the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our hope in Him will come to fruition. You may have sympathized with Thomas, perhaps even identified with him a little in his doubt and cynicism, but know that it is a truly blessed person who looks into the accounts of Jesus, who sees the evidence supporting his resurrection as a historical event and looks at the testimony of the disciples and the testimony of the church and throws their lot in with Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. See, this Easter, rid yourself of the learned cynicism. The cynicism of a hard life, it may have taught you to cling to this miserable attitude, but instead cling to the hope that Easter brings. You do not live in a world where your ultimate evil is planned. You live in a world where God loves you. Christ is risen from the dead. Your view of reality can never be the same. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, we confess that often we can hide behind our cynicism and pessimism and demand unrealistic evidence Evidence that we wouldn't demand of anything else but for the things that we fear the most. Father, we know that your son Jesus rose again from the dead and that our hope in him is not in vain. So help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to rid ourselves of cynicism and despondency and misery and trust once again like a child. 
come to you with that childlike faith and dependence and see once again with awe and wonder the beauty of the Easter message. That this isn't a mere story. This is the real world. We live in a world, Lord, where a man has come back from the dead. Father, I pray for those here that might not know you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit this Easter, you would be convicting them of the truth of this message, that they would see how blessed it is to believe in the Son of God and that they would throw their life in with him, knowing that he is good and that there is something good about this world, and that there is something to hope in. We love you, Lord, for all that you do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.